Okay. great memories and people's minds who have terrible memories and uh, how they manage that in terms of, you know, learning and expressing intellectual ideas. I mean, you know, people who are thinking about things. So as a musician, do you, do you play from sheet music? Me, most of the kind of memory? Most of the time, you know, it's fun, interesting you ask that because there's kind of a truism in jazz about you've got to have stuff memorized or else you're not really playing. But in most jazz, you're just playing like a 32-bar tune and then improvising, whereas my music is just pages and pages of written music. I, it would be very difficult for me to memorize it even if I didn't have... Uh, didn't have a terrible memory. But that being said, almost everything I've played for decades has been written out. And I guess that's, you lose the ability to remember things. Whereas when I was in my 20s and for a few years I earned my living basically as a street musician and played Dixieland tunes and jazz standards, I knew 300 tunes by heart. Now I know like three. What are they? Um, on the sunny side of the street? Uh, let's see, what else do I know by heart? Um... Uh, polka dots and moonbeams? I probably know more than three, but... I, I, you know, I don't really do that kind of work anymore much. And when I do, I have to read the tunes. It's always kind of embarrassing when I do. But uh, I just can't remember the tunes anymore. I don't play them often enough. My name is Philip Johnston. Uh, I'm a saxophonist and composer. I write original scores for silent films and perform them live with the films. I play jazz, uh, nowadays mostly my own original music and a number of different forms. And um, 
Yeah, I think that's about it. So quite a long time ago, even though I loved playing jazz and um, with uh, playing other people's music and playing my music, from a professional point of view, I came to understand that I was never going to be a big star in the world of jazz and that I needed to find a way to do what I do in a context that was going to be practical for me. That was part of it. But in addition, I just always loved working in collaboration with other people um, and other media. So film music, television, theater, modern dance, and then ultimately, silent film music. Um, I find it, I mean, sounds kind of mundane, but very inspirational. I love the art form of connecting music and pictures and I just think that's really interesting. In parallel I've always played in clubs and played music without that but I find that to be a really interesting thing to do and I also find that it's um, in a way an, an art form that still has a lot of room to explore that I think there's a lot of area to be creative and explore some ideas that haven't been explored that much. So that's really exciting to me. <clears throat> I'll give a concrete example. Um, in film music, you are working for a director. That director is your boss and your job is to express that director's vision. That's totally cool. That's what the job is. That's why they pay you because you're doing a job working for someone else, and I find that to be an interesting thing to do. However, when you're doing contemporary scores for silent film, you don't have that. <clears throat> and you're free to reinvent the relationship between music and the moving image. Um, nevertheless, most of the people who do contemporary scores for silent films don't really reinvent that relationship because that's just the way we've always thought about music for film uh, as a soundtrack, as a, a, in, in what's called in film music um, analysis parallelism. You're telling the story, but I think there's a lot of other interesting ways that they can relate together and uh, that haven't really been explored. So to me, there's a big open territory that I've tried to explore in my silent film music. Um, and that makes it really exciting.
Exactly. That's, again, one other possible approach. There's many possible approaches from, uh, from being kind of related, to being unrelated, to being totally related, to be related in a different way. And then if you have a feature film, which has music all the way through it, you have the possibility, at least, of mixing and matching those throughout a singular film. So you can go from parallelism to asynchronicity to something more like juxtaposition, I guess is what you're talking about in the case of the most Cunningham thing. And, you know, hopefully you organize those in a way that has its own internal logic based on your vision of how to do it and of that film in particular. So that's pretty exciting to me. That's what's really made me focus in this time of my life a lot on that kind of work. Yes. Okay. Yes. And this brings up the first question that I responded to, which is uh, the technical thing. So when I began doing scores for silent film, I the way I accomplished that was I would create the score the way you create a modern film in the computer with uh, DAW and so on, um, and then to perform it. Everybody would have, I'd have a copy of the score, everybody would have a part, and I would have um, visual cues from the film written every few bars. And I'd constantly be conducting and changing tempos to stay in sync with the film. When I did The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, that was kind of a new thing for me in which I created as part of the composition um, an electronic layer using loops and samples and pre-recorded instruments for the entire score and then perform live against that. So in a way it's like a giant play-along record. So we don't have to worry about keeping in sync because we're keeping in sync with the pre-recorded score, but we're also performing live. So half the music is pre-recorded and half of it is performed live from a score.
I love different types of music. And when I was first drawn to music in high school, seriously, it, I discovered the jazz of the 1920s and the 1930s, and then the music that was happening around that time of uh, the Art Ensemble of Chicago and Anthony Braxton, and uh, there was so much great stuff happening, uh, the Revolutionary Ensemble and Sun Ra. I discovered all these things kind of at the same time, and I was very drawn to both of these types of music. Part of my association uh, with jazz of the 20s and 30s had to do with cartoon music. I loved old cartoons like early Felix the Cat and Betty Boop and stuff like this, which often featured this music. So this was all uh, mixed up in my head together. As I started getting more involved in jazz as a practitioner, eventually I explored the whole history of jazz, starting at the two extremes historically and filling in the middle little by little and discovering monk and discovering bebop and discovering west coast cool school kind of stuff. Um, and just specific things that I love. At the same time, I discovered Captain Beefheart. Um, and also very much, but to a slightly lesser degree, Frank Zappa. And I love this music too. Um, and these were always motivating factors that um, made me excited about music. Flight New York musicians, led by composer and arranger Philip Johnston, who has put together the group Fast and Bulbous, the Captain Beefheart Project. A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag is fast and bulbous. Got me?
also discovered um, Harry Parch and Conlon and Carroll around this time and Charles Ives and these were again things that I loved and were things that drew me into music. I guess it's my personality. I had to put them all together and the music that I do is um, sort of a confluence of all these different things. That being said, to just make a big mishmash of the soup. they become kind of meaningless. So what I've had a tendency to do is have specific projects that focus more in one area. Explore this for a bit. Um, explore that for a bit. Always bringing over a few elements from the other thing to kind of color what I'm doing. <clears throat> so, you know, let's say the music of the microscopic septet has elements of... Uh, a lot of those things that I mentioned, 20s and 30s jazz, but also music by Monk and Mingus and so on, and maybe, you know, weird tangos and marching bands and so on, but always bring in a few other uh, elements. The group I had, the Transparent Quartet, was kind of very influenced by kind of cool school and third stream kind of music, but I'd bring in a little element of cartoon music and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of mixture of the two of just uh, doing music that I'm excited about. about the project with Art Spiegelman, Wordless, that that's one of the things that brought Art and I together, that we both love widely divergent elements of uh, our art form and are sort of, you know, historian slash fanboys where we want to, you know, put on all these different masks and clothing and play around with them and mix them together in unexpected ways. And uh, as soon as we met, we just had this language in common and that the work that we made, we did something else before uh, um, Wordless that never reached full uh, 
fruition, this kind of musical slash opera called Drawn to Death. But in both of these projects, they were really centered on that as a modus operandi. Expressing our love of the history of comics and music, particularly jazz, because of the historical eras, and, um, and also uh, like commenting on it, but inhabiting it and in just celebrating it at the same time. thought I was just making comics. Even my current museum retrospective is called comics. Actually, uh, comics. A comixing of words and pictures. Because I figured a misspelling and a mispronunciation was better than a misnomer. And that hyphen helps defamiliarize the word so you can see it fresh. I've spent my life trying to balance on a hyphen that links opposite tendencies together, like the invisible hyphen between the serious and the comic between high art and low, time and space, words and pictures. I picture you on that hyphen, the rational left side of your brain, flooded by the dense barrage of language, while your intuitive right brain on the other side of the hyphen is repeatedly whacked by the flood of images and music that are at the heart of this program. Well, the, the, the silent film era, to me, is just an amazing period of culture. Um, that medium in particular, to me, silent film and sound film are really almost two entirely separate art forms that, in a way, have nothing to do with each other. But the level of imagination and uh, Yes, technical advancement, but also just freedom uh, and uh, this kind of dreamlike world that they created, I think, is so fantastic that it's kind of different from anything else in art history. It's not 100% different, but it's got something that's very distinctive about it. And I'm haunted by this idea that there's this vast art form of improvised scores for silent films, which during most of the history of film, each film, each performance had a different score that was not recognized as something of lasting value and was not recorded. We don't have literally any recordings of these made-up scores um, to silent films. There's a whole elaborate area of scholarship, which, as we've discussed, I'm involved in, of cue books and um, um, uh, <clears throat> compiled scores, and then toward the end of the silent film era, composed scores for silent film. But there's also a vast unknown musical history of the music that accompanied film from the very first showing 
by the Lumiere brothers who filmed there was always music with it. So I think there's so many things about it that are just really fascinating. The 20s and 30s to me was an amazing time in uh, classical music, you know, with Verez and, and the people we were talking about before. I, I'm gonna conflate something that happened across a period of time, but you know, Ives and Henry Cowell and uh, Ruth Crawford Seeger and um, Harry Parch and all, all the people that we were talking about. Um, and then in jazz, so compositionally oriented, if you're interested in composition, uh, early Duke Ellington and um, Don Redman and Cy Oliver and all these different people uh, that were doing amazing stuff. It went somewhere different after that, which was also great. You know, you sort of had the ascendancy of the soloist and so on. And I think in the 60s again, you had a moment of greater collectivity with the Jazz Composers Orchestra and um, 60s and 70s going into things like the Mingus bands and uh, uh, Gil Evans and Tad Dameron. Again, I'm conflating some things across time in a non-literal way. But I love that, that collectivity. And I think in a lot of ways there's some things like that happening now, again, in groups of people who collaborate. Really, they're always happening. I mean, in the 80s in New York, when I was part of the scene with people like Wayne Horvitz and Bobby Previtt and uh, um, uh, Elliot Sharp and just all the people who were part of the scene that we were a part of, I'm leaving out millions of people. But um, again, there was a great moment of people playing in each other's bands and exchange of ideas. These are really exciting times whenever they happen throughout history and painting and dance and writing and music and theater and in film and great stuff comes out of that. Yeah, I think the high-low distinction, like so many things, you have to see in two different ways. One, as it is, exists, it's sort of like we were talking about, about categories as far as both getting your work out there and as an artistic pursuit. Um, high-low culture, as far as getting your work out there, is something that um, has its own challenges that are separate from necessarily, can be not necessarily the same as the pursuit of your work. And of course, what's happened over the last couple of decades about the fantastic, uh, the, the fascination with, what do they call this, art group, um, uh, outsider, art uh, outsider art and so on, you know, also turns that inside out and, uh, you know, modernism and postmodernism and so on. Stylistically, from a stylistic point of view, there's basically how are you going to do it and how are you going to make it? And then how are you going to tell people about it? So one of the things about my own music is that I use a lot of um, 
techniques from my study of classical music, uh, developing of thematic material and longer forms, extended, uh, extended structures and so on that don't necessarily sound like classical music in the way the original third stream music did, but rather use those techniques to take uh, stylistic elements from jazz and even uh, blues, quite a bit from blues, as a way of making compositions. But it doesn't make it classical music, which is high art, even though the techniques are using counterpoint and theme and variations. Um, <clears throat> and other compositional ideas. So, you know, you're always, it's, in a way, it's hard to have the language to talk about the difference between those two yeah. things. How are you going to make it and how are you going to sell it? The same thing is true of the entire history of silent film. The vast majority of it is lost. And one of the things about living in Australia is even though Australia was one of the most active countries in the early era of film, it also has one of the greatest percentages of that history being lost. So a lot of, there's a lot of things that you just basically read about, but you can't see them. Still, time goes on and new things are always popping up, like the rediscovery of footage from Metropolis and so on. There's an amazing film in Australia. Uh, it's called For the Term of His Natural Life. And it's a convict story. It's based on a book from the time. And it was completely lost. And uh, the National Film and Art Sound Archive, this is already decades ago, um, has made this fantastic uh, reconstruction. I think it really needs to be kind of uh, re-technologized at this point, but it's an amazing piece of work where they had some footage, just pieces of it, they found in Australia. They had some other pieces that they found in America of a touring print. There was some archival, uh, like, um, how would you say, um, like documentary footage from the time. Um, a lot of production stills. They had, the director didn't, this is as I recall the story, didn't actually have a shooting script. He had a copy of the novel and he wrote in it what he wanted to use and they have that. And they made this Frankenstein of a film, putting together all these different elements, and it's fantastic. Is it the original film? Not technically, but it's an amazing work of art, and it's kind of a vision of the original film. 
stuff like this. I love, and uh, an Australian um, composer has done a fantastic score for it. It's great. Um, there's just, it just shows you what the, the possibilities of an art form that's so ephemeral in a way. We're kind of reconstructing it all the time. Absolutely. But to me, Reiniger is a very specific kind of artist. She discovered this thing. She was doing a lot of interesting things uh, at the beginning of her career, and she discovered this thing of silhouette animation, and she decided, this is the stop for me. This is my thing. And she was very focused. When we were young, so John Zorn is like, basically my oldest musical friend. We met when we were like 19 and 20. And we used to have this discussion. Is it better to read one book a hundred times or a hundred books one time? And I won't recapitulate the whole discussion that goes with that. But Lottie Reiniger to me is a person who reads one book a hundred times. So is Captain Beefheart. He had a very specific personal language, like Lottie Reininger, like um, uh, Harry Parch, like, um, like Conlon and Carol. People who have a very unique vision and they just pursue and ref refine that vision. Uh, Monk was like that in a way. Um, film composers tend to be a little bit more like shapeshifters who inhabit different roles. And that's kind of the kind of composer I am. But I'm drawn to these people who just, who have this vision that's very original and they don't become sidetracked by other things that come along. They just refine that language and create an incredible body of work that sometimes is not necessarily, this is another old, argument. Is the greater artist the person who was more unique or the person who was more influential? Unique, Steve Lacey. Influential, John Coltrane. Who cares who was the greatest artist, really? It's just really a way of having a discussion about things, but you see what I'm getting at there. Um, a Steve Lacey, uh, Conlon and Carol, a Lottie Reininger, those are people who were very focused in a specific area and created this amazing original art form. And I'm in awe of that. But I don't have that kind of focus. I, I'm more of the trying out different things, wearing different disguises type of artist. Well, it makes sense that you found the home in academia. <laughs> Academics are much more prone to read 100 books. <laughs> yes.
Balinese shadow play is the thing yeah, that yeah. she's most uh, often compared to. It's definitely that kind of thing. And you see, for almost 100% of her work, she looked to fables, to mythology, to kind of folk tales and so on, because that's a great vehicle to express things that are kind of archetypal or um, symbolic, metaphorical, and so on. That was, yeah, that was the language in which she spoke. sort of had a long, circuitous route to Prince Ahmed. I, I had, uh, years ago, not anymore, the support of the film uh, Society of Lincoln Center, and that was uh, shown to me by the uh, Sarah Maxfield, who was the managing director, I don't know what her official title was, when they asked me about creating a new score for something they were doing, I eventually ended up doing Murnau's Faust instead, but I always had that in the back of my mind. Then in, uh, when I got to Sydney, I was asked to do something for the German Film Festival, because I had done my Faust for them, and, but then at the last minute, it didn't work out, so because of something like the venue wasn't available, so I dropped it again. Then when I was doing my PhD, I was looking for a work, an Australian work, but I couldn't find anything that fit exactly, and I remembered Prince Ahmed, and that's when I started working on the score. Um, the, and what I decided to do, first thing I wanted to do, I decided was no faux um, world music. <coughs> Second of all, I had this idea of combining a pre-recorded score and a live score. So I recorded one level of, I don't know, from between one and 10 tracks of working with loops and samples, um, and uh, which I derived in a variety of different ways. And then I used two keyboard players and trombone and soprano saxophone to perform live against that. So the written score has all the sampled stuff, all the live stuff, but in the live performance, the pre-recorded stuff is played back um, through you know, an audio delivery process and the live musicians play against that. At the same time, I had gotten really interested in kind of doing something with funky organ, Jimmy Smith, Stanley Turrentine kind of jazz. And that's my group that I just released a record of, The Cooler Raiders, with Alistair Spence, a great piano player who plays organ on it in Sydney, and Lloyd Swampton from The Necks, Nick Sassir, a terrific Australian drummer. And I used some of those same ideas in it. I wanted, my idea was one, to revisit ideas from minimalism, Two, 
the organ jazz thing three the combination of the loops and samples and make those the elements out of which I was going to compose the score and that's what I did So I've released two CDs at the same time. One is called Diggin' Bones, and it's of this quartet called the Coolerators. And we're going to play with the band from the Art Spiegelman thing, which I call the Silent Sex. Um, that was Art's idea, actually, the name of the band. And, but I'm playing a lot of the music from the CD arranged for a different ensemble. And uh, the Prince Ahmed thing is just kind of coincident. I am trying to figure out how to perform that here, but in the almost 15 years I've been away, people, everybody at every job has changed, and I don't have the resources that I used to have to just say, hey, can I do this here and so on. So it's hard to find a place to perform it. I haven't really figured out where to do it yet. But I will, and I just need to find the time. One of the reasons why I'm not, why I don't have the time to do it, is I'm working on a new silent film project based on Australian silent film. And you know, when you have the choice of researching and writing music and then calling people at venues and saying, hey, pay attention to me, one has a tendency to do the more fun thing. But I will. Sure. Maybe. Uh, I've released them on CD, so Ahmed yeah, yeah. and my earlier ones, but to perform it, uh, mostly not. The only thing I like that I've done, because I, while I like to think that the music is interesting enough to, uh, to listen to on a CD, it's really meant to go with the film. The only reason I release it on a CD is because, for various rights reasons, I don't have the resources to release a DVD of the film with the music. But um, the 
one thing I've done is, so my third silent film thing was music for a Japanese silent film called Page of Madness. And when I was doing my residency at The Stone in 2015, for the last night of it, I created a kind of, I call it Page of Madness Suite for Improvisers. So it's an hour-long piece using some of the thematic material from the score, but also as a framework for a comp combination of composition and improvisation for a large ensemble of, say, 10 to 13 musicians. I've also performed that in Australia. So that's taking the score and kind of making it into something else without the film. That's the only time I've done something like that, but that's a very fun thing to do. You had 13 musicians at the stone? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I did. Something like that. Uh, it was crowded, yes. But it was very enjoyable, and I may do it next year in Sydney again, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, you could do, you could perform, but there's not really any point in performing the music without the film. It's more satisfying to perform it with the film. I'm a perfect example of that because when I was young, I loved film music. And when I was being formed as a musician, as a composer, and a composer, and I listened to a lot of film music just for the music. So composers like uh, Nino Rota, Ennio Morricone, Bernard Herrmann, these were very influential composers on me as a composer. And then when I started writing music and performing it, people would say to me, your music sounds like film music. And that led on to eventually people asking me to write music for their films. I love the music with the films too, and I always listened very carefully to scores in films as I watched them. But I just loved the music. So to this day, I buy film soundtracks and listen to the music as music. So to me, that's a great art form, the film music CD uh, without the film. And uh, some of them, in a way, work better without the film. Like, for example, Duke Ellington's uh, score for Anatomy of a Murder. I'm not sure I think it's 100% successful as a film score, but it's one of the best records he ever made. It's an amazing record just to listen to it by itself.
for some reason this has come up um, a lot recently, you know, you'll hear a, a, a piece of music played and the artist will say, this is my response to global warming. I appreciate that, but I don't really understand it. When I write instrumental music, it's not about anything. It's about technical concerns. Uh, like Stravinsky said, he said, music can never express anything. It can only express technical ideas. I certainly think music can express emotions and so on, but as far as the way I compose, my music isn't about global warming. It's about what happens if you put five bars of three, four against three bars of five, four. And but different strokes for different folks. Most of the films I've worked on, there aren't existing original scores. In the case, or that we know of, but often there weren't specific scores. Um, in the case of Prince Ahmed, not only is there original score, but the score and the film were created very closely together in the director and the composer. And it's a terrific score. It does all those things I said that I wasn't going to do. It's a terrific score, and let me just say, even though my scores attempt to do something a little different than traditional silent film scores, I love all kinds of silent film music. Ones that invoke historical scores. I, I just enjoy watching uh, new music with uh, silent films in almost every case. But um, I listen to it before I began, just out of curiosity to see, but then I never listened to it again, so no. I don't make, for the most part, I don't make any attempt to invoke uh, what people expect of silent film scores. Sometimes I do in a kind of meta kind of way, like I sort of um, use it to uh, make a statement somewhere that I think usually is funny. For example, the, the, my first score, I made the most explicit reference to traditional silent film scores. And what I did was tried to take those techniques but change the role of the characters. So in my score, I make the bad guy the hero and the romantic leads the bad guys. And in order to communicate that, I needed to um, use traditional film scoring techniques to communicate ideas. So for example, the most scary, scary film music is reserved for the romantic, and romantic ending of the film. So those would be the cases in which I use those kind of techniques. And I do a similar thing when 
the bad guy is was played by Lon Chaney is is trying to kill the hero, I have sort of exciting heroic music because to me he's the hero. But generally I don't try to mimic silent film music, but I do play. I try to be playful with our expectations of silent film music and film music in general. That's part of the fun of it for me.
Thank you.